Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, episode number 97, and the first episode of season five. Boom. We're back from the summer. It's the first day of school when we're recording this, and I just like to sing it's the most wonderful time of the year, because this really is the most wonderful time of the year. It's a lot of excitement on campus. The students, uh, lots of smiles and stuff. I know they haven't had their homework start yet. Exactly. (laughs) I I will say the only ones that I've really seen, the comment was like, how are you? Oh, so much homework I have to do. So it's like kind of the syllabus shock day and they haven't even gotten to tomorrow. And so they're going to get more of it. But but you mostly teach upperclassmen, right? Uh, yeah. Okay. I mean, I had two full. By year, not by maturity. Class <laughs> freshmen. And so they weren't thinking of this syllabus shock yet. They were just excited yeah. to be here. After, after my first three semesters, you kind of just like, yeah, whatever. Okay. I so. Bad because I asked them where they're from and I was like dishing hard on Nebraska and then I had like a pile of Nebraskaites. So I, I, I love Nebraskaites, but you I were s- doing exactly what you should do. Exactly. Nebraska. Yeah. But I want to be, you all know, right, all right. love all. <laughs> okay. Tim says we gotta be done. Seminary, seminary starts on Wednesday. So yes. And you have orientation tomorrow. We do. Awesome. Blossom. Well, well, that's a good podcast. We should be done, right? No. Hmm. No. no. Come on. We got questions to answer. We have some Thinklings business to tend to. Books and business. Speaking Ooh, of. Let's oh, talk about some books. Speaking of books <laughs> and business. Oh. Uh, if you're a student, I do books and business. We're reading through Beauty by Roger Scruton on Monday Ooh. nights. So it actually starts tonight, but obviously tonight is Monday night. So they're listening o'clock. to this on Tuesday. I know. You're going to miss it. The 10 first o'clock episode. in the Nettleton classrooms, right? Yep. 10 o'clock. Oh, and uh, so that's every Monday night, 10 o'clock, Nettleton Classrooms, mm-hmm. and uh, worth your time. I also want to give a plug for, help me remember the name, Fundamental Lit. Fundamental Lit. By yeah. Honorary Thinkling, Dr. Josh Puddleglum Boyd. Heyo. And that, I think the first meeting is next Tuesday at three, and we're reading The Consolation of Philosophy, or an excerpt from that, of that, from a Great Books Reader. And uh, you want to go to that too. And then there's there's one other thing I have to say. Maybe it's the same thing that Tim is saying. We have a books and business contest that we're going to run. And so you are entering to win a lot of great books and things from the FBBC bookstore. The way that you enter that is you submit your own books and business, which is you read a book and you email us at thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. You give us a rating for the book on the Thinklings Goodness Scale. You give us like a paragraph of what you thought, and you submit that in August, which I guess you're going to hear this on like one of the last days of August. Maybe we'll let it drip into September as well. But in September, we're going to post those on our social media, and then we're going to pick winners in October. So I really, really, I guess all through September, you'd be able to, to email those in. And uh, yeah, so books and business contest submit through our email. Is that what you were saying? No. So this weekend I'm speaking, doing a workshop at Men's Revive. Oh, so yeah. if, if you uh, Men's Revive at the Iowa Regular Baptist Camp, uh, if you're thinking of coming, hey, show up and uh, come to my workshop on Saturday. Well, this weekend or two weekends? This weekend. So like, oh yeah, this is going to air tomorrow. Yeah. Wow. I've got dates all off in my mind. Got to like reset the brain Ooh. for a second there. Okay, so yeah, lots of great things you can come and see 
and now we have some business to tend to. Let's talk about some books. So I'm going to go first. The book that I'm reading was a gift to me. So I'm going to shout out to the person who gave it to me. Cameron, my friend Cameron, gifted me In the House of Tom Bombadil by C.R. Wiley. And that is through Canon Press, which is Doug Wilson's thing, correct? Man, Cameron, you got good taste in books. And friends. And friends. Sorry, I neglected that. My apologies. <laughs> I think that too, I haven't though. seen him or talked to him in a long time. I mean, I so have the same taste. So I'm like 99% <laughs> sure he's still alive, but maybe not. I don't know. So <laughs> not to be morbid, but we are talking about death a lot. We are. It's, it's my fault. Sorry. So, <laughs> so anyway, what is this book? This guy gives a his rundown, his take on who Tom Bombadil is. And if you're not familiar with this discussion... There is a wide and long and technical discussion about this character from the Fellowship of the Ring, Tom Bombadil. And let me tell you why. He actually takes the ring from Frodo at one point and it has like no power over him. He like does a couple of magic tricks with it and then like gives it back. He's called eternal and self-existent by Goldberry, his wife. And so people try to come up with in Tolkien lore, like who this guy is, like who is he representing? So I'm going to, I'm not going to really give a survey of the big views, but I'm just going to say, if you go to the preface of Lord of the Rings, Tolkien is very adamant that Lord of the Rings is not allegory, is not allegory. So there is not an intentional, like Tom Bombadil is meant to represent this. He's not doing that. He's just a character in the book. What Wiley eventually says is that he thinks Tom Bombadil is a representation of the full happy ending of the story. In one of Bombadil's little crazy songs, he talks about, I think it's when he expels the white from the Barrow Down. Oh, yeah. And he's saving the hobbits. And he, in his little poem there, he actually casts the white away until the earth is mended and there's this like future like realization of there's someday that middle earth and all of Mm -hmm. earth is going to be mended completely from the shadow of the ring and so it's like a little homage in the book tom bombadil as a character of like the final ending and uh there's some other thoughts about who tom bombadil quote unquote is uh wiley gives some options um it's it's if you're really into Lord of the Rings, it's an interesting read. If you're not really into Lord of the Rings, you're gonna be like, who cares? I'm gonna give it uh, because I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan. I'm gonna give it a five on the Thinkling's Goodness Scale. And if you want to start thinking that through, it's it's a cool little book. It's a cool little book. So, uh, I don't remember Tom Bombadil in Lord Lord of the Rings. I've watched all the movies, but. He's not in the movie. (gasps) He's not. There's there is a slight slight credit. A slight credit to Tom Bombadil in the movies. In it's actually in the wrong movie. It's in the two towers where Pippin and Mary are going through Fangorn Forest, and one of the trees starts to close around them. That actually doesn't happen in Two Towers, it happens in Fellowship. And it's Tom Bombadil that frees uh, Frodo yeah. and Sam. Or I think it might still be Par- uh, Mary and Pippin. I think it is. Yeah, I think it is. But Mary it's it's Tom Bombadil who comes around and frees them from the tree. It's not Treebeard, right? So um, and the tree's not in Fangorn. It's it's in the old forest, right? Yeah. And so Peter Jackson gives a slight homage to the idea 
but not the character. And I get why, because he's, he's a difficult character to understand. If you want this to have a wide appeal, why would you introduce this really weird, odd character and then <laughs> never come back to him again? Cause so. you're, you're reading it and he is really interesting kind of, but you're also, he's like out of left field in my mind. And then he never appears again. So Andy, we've brought this up before. Who do you think Tom Bombadil is? Or what so do you- I'm going to adjust it after hearing you, but I'm going to say, I think I can, I, I have a guess at where he got inspired from. So where did the Inklings meet? The Eagle and Child. Yes. A pub in England or Oxford or whatever. So every time I've read Tom Bombadil, I don't know why I get this picture of here's Tolkien and Lewis and Barfield and they're sitting around and Tolkien's thinking up stuff and he looks over and here's this bar fly, like a guy who goes to the bar all the time and he's always just merry and he doesn't like do anything of his life, but have fun. And I think Tolkien looked at him and thought, I'm going to make him a character. That's literally what I think of. Cause he's gotcha. just so happy and all that. But, yeah, but the problem is now that I've heard all that, I'm like, oh, that doesn't sound good. So, so I, I take it back. I will well, it's say, like someone who goes, you know, oh, okay. to the pub all the time. And Wiley does give a handful of what I would call legitimate options, and he actually does bring direct quote from Tolkien about how he did consider Bombadil to be an important part of the story. That's why he left him in there. It's not without a purpose, but I think where the conversation easily goes is that he was trying to do some great theological thing with the character. Like this is Jesus or this is God, you know, this is the creator and he's living in his own world, but he didn't like allegory. I don't think he would have done that. And Wiley agrees. So no, I like that option. Anyway, that's yeah. What do you got for book? Uh, so I, I read Peter Pan to my children this uh, summer and it was, um, cast iron or nonstick. What? You said Peter Pan. Sorry, I'm done. Oh, you're a horrendous. Okay, so just uh, a lot of lost children. A lot of lost joke. children, right? <laughs> Two points to you. Um, so it was an interesting that read. Was like three eye rolls. He, I didn't really like the. There are several things I didn't really care for about it, but again, I'm not a literary critic, and so maybe, maybe, um, who is the author? Barry or whatever. I was trying to communicate some children to or truth to children uh, through the book, but Peter Pan is extremely proud, very selfish, and he's just bad. Like he's not a good kid. Uh, and the other issue is that he gets away with everything. He's basically God of Neverland. Um, he seems eternal and is always looking for or wanting a mother, which is kind of weird. So there's Wendy, but then Wendy has a child at the end of the book, Wendy has a child. And then Peter Pan comes and visits that child and takes that child to Neverland. And then that child has a child and takes that daughter to Neverland. So it's like, he's always wanting a mother and needing a mother, uh, but he's always perpetually, eternally a child. So it's kind of an interesting development. And I don't know if the author was trying to communicate something like, hey, listen, there's a time to grow up and everybody needs to grow up. You can't be a kid forever. Um, but that if that is a message that was trying to be communicated, it wasn't, it wasn't strong. There's a lot of death in the book, which was kind of surprising to me. I was familiar with the Disney version. And of course, they took all of that out of it. Uh, the crocodile eats hook. The pirates, I mean, Peter kills them and he's got his dagger and he's whacking them. Uh, the Indians are, they die. The pirates kill the Indians. So there's a lot of death in the book, uh, which was kind of surprising to me for a children's book. 
Uh, probably the most surprising thing was there was a swear word. The fairy calls Peter or makes statements a lot of several times, a silly donkey, but uses the A word. And I don't know if that was um, maybe a cultural thing, because even we have a hymn that, that um, you know, where ox and ass are sleeping. So I don't know if that was like a cultural thing, something changed in the language hmm. in that ancient language that wasn't considered a swear word, but it did uh, occur several times in the book. Uh, and it kind of just surprised me. Uh, the story was okay. It was it was all right, but the kids didn't. It didn't really resonate with them, and they're just kind of like eh, indifferent to it. So I don't know if I had to read it again, would I probably not? I'd probably pick something different. Um, but it was it's a classic, and so uh, I was glad to get familiar with it. Peter Pan. That's what I've got. Would you rank it, or just not even? Oh, maybe like uh, maybe like a one or a two. You know, it's a classic, so there's some benefit there we're familiar with the story the disney story hmm. yeah so that's probably about it okay. you know like tom bombadil would i put your book at a five no <laughs> well, the, the reason i put it at a five i know is because i am it's like if you remember dr newman gave a recommendation for that book from the single woman missionary mm-hmm. yeah i think it was that book where he's like i'm gonna rate it like a seven but if you're like not interested in missions it's like a three right you know like i'm a huge lord of the rings fan so that's a five. If I wasn't a Lord of the Rings fan, it, like, it's like a one. Yeah. You know, I started reading it. I got disinterested, but you know, I will say it goes into things that it's like, who cares? Yeah. But you know what book does want to teach that all kids have to grow up? What? Where the red fern grows. Oh. Just wait on that. We're going to have a conversation about that at some point. I started it. We're reading that one I now. I do think he's trying to teach that in there. But anyway. Okay. Uh, well, I'm going to do two. I'm trying to write more like we're all trying to write. And so today I actually wrote a blog post for like the first time in a year. So that was good. Um, it's always fun to edit anything you write. I had edited it like three times and thought it was clean, posted it, sent it to my wife. She still found two grammatical mistakes. So it's really nice to have a wife who can edit or friends who can just, it's good to have editors cause it's not me. <laughs> Um, okay. So this week for my book though, I want to talk about the purity principle by Randy Alcorn. I think I mentioned this as something I was going to read at the beginning of the summer or what I was reading. I I'm almost done. I have like one more chapter left, but I have enough that I want to rank it. I like this book a lot. It is very practical. If I only had to recommend one book, it wouldn't be this one. Um, it's not bad. It's just, it's, it's short it's brief. It's full of helpful principles that I really like, but I think I would want something more maybe full sanctification oriented. But if you have one of those, then I would say this is a book you need in your arsenal. Um, if you have like, I don't know, uh, Heath Lambert's book, blanking on the name, finally free, finally free. Uh, if you have one of those kind of books, this is a great addition. It's very practical. So he gives a lot of what I would call like Proverbs one and two style reasoning with you. So he's, he's going to talk about counting the cost. He's going to say, what's this going to get you? What's this going to do to you? He's getting you to think eternally with the decisions you're making right now to follow your desires or not. He's giving you practical tips on what to do. Now, here's the thing. If your motivation is wrong, then you may find some things in this book that could be really helpful, less helpful. But I think if you're following the Lord, you want to serve God, you're, you're paying attention to your motives, 
this book would be really helpful. He's got a chapter uh, with guidelines for singles, which is pretty good, and one for couples and parents that's pretty good. Um, he talks, he, I mean, it's just very practical stuff. Uh, I thought it was good. So I would recommend it. I would say because it's a small book, very practical, not the only book I'd want in this year. I give it like a six. I think it's a six. It's a pretty good book. Five or a six, I'd recommend it. Um, but I, I would say it shouldn't be the only book that you read on the idea of purity or anything, but it's a really good book. So when you say what you say about discipleship, you know, is it like, what what's lacking? In his brevity, there are times where he's talking about techniques. So like, for example, he, it's a, it's a really good chapter on the battle is in your mind. And so he's talking about purity from a mental standpoint, which is really good. One of the very practical things, I remember this being shared in a class I took years ago here, is it, you, can't, um, you can't stop thinking about a thing unless you start thinking about something else. Right. And so then he brings up the Philippians 4.8 idea that you need to be meditating on, the Colossians 3, you need to set your mind. And so often when there's temptation of the mind, you're thinking, I shouldn't do that, I shouldn't do that, I shouldn't do that. And you're praying that God would help you not to do it. And he's saying, hey, like the Bible says to do something different. You should be dwelling on godliness and goodness. And there's just a lot of really good practical stuff. Okay. But he's not, I don't think that he's laying out it's, it's just really, it's good in that sense is what I would say. Mm-hmm. It's not, I wouldn't say it's bad, but mm-hmm. I would say that if you are fully, if you're really wanting something that's getting down at the heart motivation level, he talks about that, but it's not the, the centerpiece of the book. Okay. It's throughout. So I wouldn't say that he is only an externalist mm-hmm. or anything like that. Um, but man, it's practical. And he's got a lot of, a lot of good example stories for you sure. without uh, using fear and shame alone to motivate you. But I, but also I think he's okay putting in front of someone, are you wanting to wreck your life? Like, mm-hmm. I don't, I, I think he's not opposed to saying, where's this going to lead you one day, which I think is just eternal thinking. Mm-hmm. So I really like it. I give it a six. I'd recommend it. If you're looking for another, book. it's super short. It's really small. So, all right. What's coming up in this episode. We're on question six of the discipleship series. So if you don't remember that from last season or yeah, it would have been the season in the spring. So you can go back and listen to questions one through five and hope you enjoy this one, question six, and we will see you next week. Let's have another conversation about discipleship. So we started last season, a series where we're walking through these 12 discipleship questions and we're going to go through a whole bunch more of them this season. I don't think we're going to finish it this season, but we'll get close. I think we'll get to 10 in season five. So just to spark your memory here, and you could go back in our podcast history. Actually, while I'm doing this, do you want to look up and so we can get episode numbers on this? So the first one was, what is God's will? Question number one. And we're pending when we started that. Question number one was episode 66. Episode 66. When was that? Was that season three? It was season three, January 18th. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. No, it was season four. Sorry. That was season. Beginning of season four. Yep. Do you want the dates on all of them? Oh, no. That's good. Okay. What is God's will? Episode 66. And what is God's will? We answered that question by saying God's will is to internally transform us. There's a lot of ways you can answer it. 
that's the way that we're gearing this in, in Christian discipleship to be transformed internally. Our heart is changing. So if that is God's will, that gets us to question two, how does God accomplish his will? If that's his desire to internally transform us, how does he accomplish his will? And that was... Episode 71. Episode 71, if you want to go back and listen to that. And our answer to that was he uses spiritual training. And spiritual training is a good illustration, like you're working out for a sport. Like you're, if you want to get better at running, you run. You want to get better at football, you football. I don't know. So <laughs> there's training and the, the exercises of that spiritual training is trials. Mm-hmm. tests and trials where God gives difficulty. That leads to question three. How do my trials or just trials in general, how do trials cultivate that internal transformation? And that was episode 74, if you want to go back and listen to that. And the discussion there is that a trial, a test, is a moment where I don't get what I wanted. That's kind of the basic definitions. Like, I'm not getting what I wanted. And you could look at James 4, very clear desire language. What happens when you don't get what you want? Your flesh will react. And so trials cultivate transformation by showing us what's going on inside of our heart. That's a, a, a much fuller conversation. Go back and listen to episode 74. So then that leads to question four. If trials are cultivating the transformation... What forms of training or trials is God using in my life? And we identified three things. He uses difficult people, difficult circumstances, and he allows for temptation. So that the temptation is, I really want to do something I know is wrong. Am I going to resist the temptation? And difficult people, difficult circumstances, well, your car breaks down, which... (laughs) <laughs> I use that illustration all the time. <laughs> and this summer, I, my car broke down all the time. And guess what? I never reacted like, oh, goody. You know, my heart is like, how much is it going to cost? Like, why is this happening? The flesh reacts mm-hmm. in circumstances where you don't get what you want. So it's helpful to identify where is God placing those trials and tests in my life. And then question number five, have I been responding correctly to God's training in my life. Did, did I mention what episode number four was? It's 77. You didn't. 77. It's 77. And then question five, have I been responding correctly to God's training in my life is, question, is episode, 80. episode 80. Episode 80. And that's a very personal, I think this where you're guiding discipleship is if you know God's will is to internally transform you, he's doing that through spiritual training test trials, which are people, circumstances, allowing temptation. You know that those are moments he's trying to show you what's in your heart. Great passage, Deuteronomy 8. If you know that's happening through those forms of training, well, what did you do in those moments? And very cut and dry, like, well, yes, no. That was section one of the book, which is what is God's will? We're going to kind of come at the same thing from a different angle, a slightly different angle in section two, which is controlled by the spirit. And that's what gets us into question six. So this is brand new. Question six, Tim and Andy, I'm going to ask the question and then just let you guys uh, answer. Okay. Question six, what are my trials or what do my trials reveal about me? So what are my trials revealing about me or what do my trials reveal about me? 
Oh man. Go. Okay, Tim, you want first crack or you I want have, me? I have a specific answer. Okay. And we've kind of already answered this, but it's we're gonna take it in a direction. But anyway. So trials reveal idols in my life. <clears throat> or I could an idol is something that we love. So it reveals the things that I really love. Yeah. Uh, particularly things that I love more than the Lord, which would then be an idol. So that's where my mind went right away. Mm -hmm. I would also say James chapter one, trials reveal your faith. So what are you trusting in? What is the quality of your faith? It's tested. And so a trial is like a test of my trust in God, which I think relates to my love and desire. So those are the two. Th and that's actually, those are the two I was thinking of. If yeah. there's more. Those are, th those get to the angle that we want to want to, look at so in the, in the actual chapter we reveal we talk about two things that trials reveal and when i teach through this like live like with a person i always say you know okay trials going back to what was it question three how do trials cultivate transformation they will they reveal what's going on in your heart and i always then say well what is going on in your heart and there's really not that many options <laughs> uh tim you said idolatry mm -hmm. And that is when you love something that is okay to love, it's not wrong, but what's wrong about the love is the degree to which you're loving it or what you're sacrificing of love to love that other thing. So idolatry, I'm loving something more than God. I'm loving something more than I should. Mm -hmm. I think you would say also that there are some things that you just shouldn't love at all. And what do we call that? Idolatry, like yeah. Baal, so I, I, Asherah, Chemosh. What I say is, they're, they're, it's, hard to, it's hard to categorize these things, but I like to, it's alliterated. I really like immorality oh, and okay. idolatry. Oh, okay. Okay, yep. So there, there like are that. some things yeah. that it's never okay to love. Mm -hmm. Never. It's never okay to love your neighbor's wife. Yep. 100% of the time, wrong answer. But is it okay to love your wife? Yeah, more than God. No. no. Ooh, I like that breakdown. That's, That's helpful yeah. to, for even, I, I like the way you said that. I really do. So, and then Andy, your response kind of got into, well, my trials reveal how genuine my faith is. And that kind of takes us in a direction where I really want to think through, not necessarily focusing on the desire itself, which in discipleship, we need to do that. We need to think through what desires are motivating me. But as I look or try to train myself to look into my heart during trials, what is it revealing about that moment? So like the trial is happening and things are reacting in me. Desires are being restricted and the flesh is reacting. What does that reveal in that moment? Well, I think it's showing something about where your flesh is. I don't know how to like, this is a, yep. a work of the flesh. This is where the flesh is present, or this is where I'm living according to the flesh to use Romans eight terminology. I don't know. Is that closer? Yeah. We're getting down the, down the Ooh, track this is, there. This is like a hunt. We're like on it. Especially it's like a, a trail. In, in the, where you started, it reveals the genuineness of my faith. So Tim, what do you, what do you think about this? What, what do you, what do you think? What does it reveal about that moment of trial? So Isaiah 50, okay. Um, Jesus, the Messiah, is going to go to the cross and die. Uh, a trial, a type of suffering that we 
will never experience or even come close to having to endure. And as he goes through that trial, he does not want it. He desires for deliverance, but God tells him, you have to do this. And so he obeys the father and does what he is told to do, not in timidity, not with trying to make it easier, but he Mm. makes his face like a flint and walks right into it. Mm. And so that is a faith in God that we can only dream of having. So that trial sanctifies and purifies the faith that one will willingly go through whatever trial that God so desires because of one's love for God, proving one really does love God more than anything, one's very own life. Oh, that's where I went with it. That's really good. And so famously in the garden, Mm -hmm. when he's in the the very moment, Mm -hmm. what does he say? Remove this cup. Yeah, but, not my will, yeah. but yours be done. Not my will. will. Now, what's another way mm-hmm. of saying that? Not what I desire, mm-hmm. but what you desire. Right. Mm. And what would we call it? Recognizing a desire that is wrong, not what God wants. Mm-hmm. Turning away from that desire to the other one. Now, this is where we're going to get sticky theologically because Christ doesn't need to do this. But what would we call that for us? Uh, I'll take repentance for 200. Yes, repentance. <laughs> So in the moment of trial, was that the daily double? (laughs) It is. You win. You win all the points. So in the moment of trial, and this is what it says in the chapter on a micro scale, our trials reveal moments of spirit or flesh control. And Mm. the passage for this chapter is Galatians five. And it's you're prompted to read that in the chapter to realize that there are contrary desires at work in me as a believer. And I don't think that's experientially uh, void from people. Like they they recognize as a believer, there's things my flesh wants to Mm. do. And there's things I know that I should want to do as a Christian. And there's conflict, uh, conflicting desires, competing desires there. And so in that moment of trial, what you're seeing revealed about you is, well, which desire am I choosing? And to say that theologically, is the section is controlled by the Holy Spirit. Am I in that moment repenting and yielding to the Spirit desire? Mm-hmm. So on a micro level, a trial reveals a moment of spirit or flesh control. And really it reveals whether you're yielding to one or the other. But I think there's also another benefit of maybe zooming out and looking at trials on a macro scale. On a macro level, trials reveal patterns of submission. So if you could go back and look at the last month, every difficult person you had, every difficult circumstance you had, and every moment of temptation, and you were able to see on each individual trial what you did, how you yielded, what was the result, you start stringing that together, you're going to see a pattern of genuine repentance or not. And most, and this is, it's hard to describe this because people want to get very perfection oriented and that's not the point at all. It's not to always do the right thing because that's, you know what? If that's your goal, good luck. You're never going to do it. Never going to get there. The point isn't to be perfect in what you do. The point is, do you respond the right way 
when you don't do the right thing because mm. that is that's the testing mm. ground here and if you don't catch it at the level of desire it will overflow into action and a lot of times you're going to react in the flesh and do things say things you know you're not supposed to well what do i do there well that's a moment of flesh control and if you can see a pattern of that developing in your life well, guess what God's been trying to work on over and over and over? Mm -hmm. Maybe it's the same person. It's like the three of us sitting here, we can think about a guy in our lives or a person, you know, like we all have them. I'm not saying we're all targeting the same person. It's like we each have people problems, right? Yes. <laughs> and we each have <laughs> circumstantial problems. Yep. Like things that are tough that happen over and over. And so easy, easily what we do in those moments, or as we look at long patterns of trial, is we just become convinced that the person's the problem or mm -hmm. that circumstance is the problem. Man, if I just would have bought the right vehicle this last summer, my life would have been so much easier, right? Is that really true? Or is God sovereign over those things and he uses something like your car breaking down multiple times to show you a pattern of fleshly living. And if you're wondering what the answer is, it's that latter one. That's the answer. <laughs> and God uses things like that all the time. So the answer to the question, what are my trials revealing about me? They're revealing moments and patterns of fleshly submission or spirit submission. And as we go in this section, we're going to really see in this section and the next section, why is it vitally important in those moments to yield to the Spirit of God? Just zoom out really big. Theologically, who is the one that transforms us? Very clear statements mm -hmm. in 2 Corinthians and Ephesians 5 that the Holy Spirit who indwells us is the one making us like Christ. Like he, he, the third member of the Trinity who is indwelling us, when we let him be in control, he makes us like Jesus. So in those moments of trial, if I'm not yielding to him, what is not happening? Transformation. And go all the way back to question one, what's God's will? To transform you. So if you can't start seeing that pattern, and responding to yielding to the spirit, uh, that th that is a reason why I think a lot of Christians externally conform but don't really change. Uh, they can they can do the right thing, try harder next time, but are they learning to submit to the spirit? By the way, through the Word of God, in moments of trial in their life, and there are they building patterns of spirit yielding? And that's the whole point of that question. So. What do you guys think about that? Maybe wrap up our conversation here. I think that you've been talking about this for years, and I think you've developed and coalesced your thought into something really specific. But I remember in 2018, I was going to speak on sanctification. <laughs> yep. <laughs> sanctification. Whoops. That sounds like a wrong way to parent. Um, I think that's in Ephesians 6. Well, I... Let's keep going. <laughs> Come back. We are making no comments on parenting. That was an, a, a, a Freudian, not even, it's just, we were talking about sanctification. <clears throat> we were in porch light. You were walking me through uh, your thoughts on it. And I was going through Colossians three, Ephesians four, 
Romans 12, and Galatians 5. And then Ephesians 5, 1 was my main text. And from that time, four years ago, over the years, you've shared the teach, transform, train yeah. idea. And it's been developing. And as I look back on all of that in my life, the most helpful thing that you were reinforcing that I remember all the way back in my classes with that, with Jeff Newman and his mentorship is in a trial, God is more concerned with my transformation than my circumstances. And I'm telling you a trial hits and I can't not think like that now. Now I don't always receive it. I don't always submit to it. I don't always humble myself, but that even like counseling other people, when something comes up and they're telling me about how horrible things have gone in their life, you know, you, you, you want to like make it easier for them and be Mm -hmm. kind. Yeah. That's like the, what I want to do, but what they need to see is that, Hey, you know what? You don't have to be as concerned about all these circumstances. God's in control providentially. What he wants you to see is what's inside of you. And it's really interesting how resistant people are to that. Like there's a, there's a person telling me about a circumstance at their job and I pointed some things out, total resistance. Uh, There's another, I mean, I can just, I could list off numerous people in the last four years. Okay. I don't want to cut you off, but I want to come to that. That idea. Cut it off. So there's a reason we call it spiritual training. When you train at something, you get really good at it. Now, think about in those moments of trial, when you have two options as a believer. And for years, Mm -hmm. you've been training yourself to say yes to your flesh. Yep. And reject the spirit. You're not repenting. You're not yielding to the word. Guess what you get really, really good at? Living according to the flesh. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Hard and And, heart. And that's where in in a moment like that, someone could be in a job for years or, you know, and by the way, we're like, we're very well-trained centers. Oh yeah. You know, like we don't need help getting better at that. Um, There was one time at a camp, I was like, we are, I think it was an Olympic year because I was like, we are Olympic sinners we are masters at sin we're so good at it and then when you try to walk in the spirit it's like you're trying to ride a bike for the first time and nothing goes the way you want it to up Mm -hmm. is down left is right like you can't figure Mm -hmm. it out it's because you need to string some patterns together and it will get easier over time to humble yourself that does not mean that you become perfect and you never do wrong things you actually just Mm. get much better at repenting, which is always a humbling exercise. Um, Many guys at Faith have heard me say this. The hardest thing God asks you to do each day is to humble yourself Mm. because you are grappling with a heart that hates it. And when that trial comes, you want to blame, you want to self-justify. And in fact, if you've been doing that for years, you're really, really good at it. And you can probably convince everybody that you didn't do anything wrong and they did. But that's not the point. You need to humble yourself and let the spirit change you. So, yeah. And I would just say that in the times looking back in the last two decades or decade of my life, when I've been humbled by God, something that has surprised me is he doesn't use always fully sanctified, perfect, sinless people as the barb to show me my sin. Yeah. He uses people who sin against me. And man, I tell you, I feel justified 
But what helped also is like this whole teaching has helped me to see like I can be sinned against, that person can be wrong, and God is providentially in control. And I still need to look at myself, what am I doing? And I need to humble myself. And I just, when another person sins, it's like the instinct is to be like, oh, I don't have to do anything. They're the sinner. Yep, and God, God is good to us to let us see so you, that. You mentioned the, I'm air quoting, the bridge illustration we used in a previous chapter. Mm-hmm. Or like we know the bridge track, like with with the gospel, like mm-hmm. the cross covers the chasm, gets us to the other side. And we talked about that bridge as the three T's. There's the teaching of God's word. <laughs> then on the other side of the big chasm is real, genuine transformation. And uh, Pastor Saucer would say this all the time. We live in a day and age where there is more biblical teaching available than any other time in history. There's great podcasts out there. Wink, wink. There's sermons like year, like every sermon John MacArthur has ever uttered. You can find online. There's YouTube, like Mm -hmm. books. Yeah. You can pick up a smartphone and you can download almost any translation that's ever existed. Does that mean we have more transformation? Well, you would expect to have more of the one than the other. Well, that that's the key. Because there's more teaching, why isn't there more transformation? It's that teaching alone does not produce transformation. Mm-hmm. You don't just, like, through osmosis, reading the Word of God, magically become different. There's a T in the middle that gets you across the bridge, and it's training. And I think in the, the book it says, you know, it is the spiritual training where the Word of God becomes real to you. Like, that is where knowing the Word becomes wisdom is when you in that moment yield to God's work in you. Like that is so vitally important. I just want to add early on when you shared this with me um, and you said, it's not the word of God alone that changes. I remember being very resistant to that because it sounded like what I had come out of in my past where it's all about change and whatnot. And the Bible is not the, you know, you don't want to be a Pharisee, but that's not what you mean. No. Cause we would all heartily say you need to be in God's word daily feeding well, on the truth. How so do that's you a non, that's a non-negotiable. I'm just saying that because there's some people probably who hear this for the first yeah. time and they might misunderstand. And that's not what we're saying, but we're saying word of God with uh, the trials. I, think, I can't remember if Scott was quoting someone, he might've been quoting himself, Scott annual, mm-hmm. but you, you do not have the spirit of God where you do not have the word of God. Yes. Yep. And, and I completely agree with yep. him. This is not some esoteric, like new yep. age, like you're yep. yielding to the spirit. It's a moment where you're recognizing your desire is contrary to the yes. word Yes. and yielding to the spirit. Yes. Is prayer of repentance, but it's also then yielding to the word. Yeah. You know, following through yep. obedience. Uh, completing you, the catch. Yeah, and you don't so think those things. I just thought for anyone who was in my yeah. former position, man, this is this stuff's really important, and it's not. That's not what we're saying. So it's a good clarifier. So just to give you a little uh, snippet of where we're going here, do you have a comment? No. Okay. Uh, so the section is all is going to be about learning to walk in the spirit. Like, what is that? So the next question: How do I know if I'm walking in the spirit? Moments of trial reveal, on a micro scale. Am I yielding to the spirit or not in that moment? You can then zoom out and look at many moments and you can see patterns of either spirit or fleshly living. So that kind of brings us right to the crux is, well, how do I know if I'm walking in the spirit? And if you're interested in that question, you can come back in a few episodes and we'll talk about it. So what's one question or one thought 
based on what you just shared that you would leave with our listeners? What can they start doing now to prepare for the next episode? Yeah, well, it's, and that's good. Uh, I think each chapter tries to end like practically what does this look like? Mm-hmm. And I actually think there we naturally don't want to look at our own error. We like to point it out in other people. Mm. And so I think some of the practical steps we've already mentioned, you know, so you should be keeping track of things like this. Like I think is there's value in having a journal and each day thinking back through, well, did God, did God trying to transform me today, allow a difficult person into my life? Mm. And if so, write that down. And I think that we've already shared that. And if not, we should have, but like journaling about like question three and four, like what forms of trials is he using? Now you go back to that list and it's not just identifying like, were they there? What were they? Now you need to turn the magnifying glass on yourself and just do it one day at a time. At the end of the day, did God bring a difficult person or circumstance in my life? Was there temptation? Yeah. The answer is going to be yes. If you're, if you're growing in wisdom and God's allowing you to see things, you're spending time in the word of God, like you will never say no. And okay. In that moment, in that moment, did I yield to the flesh or the spirit? And then I, I think another practical step is then stringing that together. Like, has this, has this person been a difficulty to me before? Yes. Okay. So what's my pattern of response with that person? Mm. And I'll just tell you, I share this at pretty much every camp I go to when we talk about authority. My dad was my biggest enemy. Like I had deep ruts of the flesh when I interact with my dad. I don't think I, I remember fighting with my mom as a teenager, but few and far between. And I remember like duking it out with my dad, like almost every time we would talk. And what was that to me as a teenager? I'm not getting what I want the flesh would react and I would give in every time. And I had developed years worth of a pattern there of any time mm. there's a conflict with my dad, there's an explosion of the flesh. Mm. And, you know, I can remember realizing that <laughs> and like, well, now we have to, we have to go the other way here. Mm. And Proverbs talks about those ruts that form. Yep. Once you do it a bunch, it's really easy to travel mm-hmm. it again. Mm-hmm. Proverbs flesh too. Is like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so forming a new rut, with the spirit, uh, it's not easy. It takes time. So I, I would start there, okay. starting to think through in that trial that I respond the right way. And is this a pattern? Mm. And I would, mm. I would say you know, that can be very discouraging to see that, but also realize this is exactly what God wants you to see so that he can transform you into a more loving, joyful, and peaceful person. And it's through the recognition and repentance that God will do that. He will produce the Spirit's fruit in your life if you learn to yield to that Spirit that's in you. Uh, So with that, we'll see you in a few weeks for another discipleship question. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, 
talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast.